Today we're starting uh, a new series. Um, if you're here for the first time, you're here on a good week um, to get the beginning. We're doing a familiar thing for churches at this time of year because what we're doing is we're starting a new section um, looking at the lead up to Easter in a few weeks' time. And this morning specifically, we're diving into Matthew's account of what we call in church circles the passion narrative, the life and events of Jesus leading up to his death on the cross. And to give a bit of context to this passage that we just had read, um, verses 1 to 16 of chapter 26, um, we need to know that for the last few chapters, Jesus has been teaching his disciples specifically about the fact that he will bring about his kingdom by going to the cross. We've had a few chapters of specific teaching about what his kingdom's going to look like, how you get ready for it, and how it's going to come about. But then in the first few verses of our passage this morning, chapter 26, all the formal instruction, all the, the teaching that Jesus has been doing to his disciples comes to an end. And we read verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. If we'd been reading from the start um, of Matthew's account of Jesus' life, we'd realise that what we've got here is a, is a massive gear change, actually, in Matthew's account. We're catapulted in these, these couple of verses at the beginning of chapter 26 into what you could call the end game of Matthew's story of the life of Jesus. Jesus lays here the foundation of how we're to think about the final days of his life on earth. And he says... As you know, he's already told them, but he says it one last time. As you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man, which is one of Jesus' favourite terms for himself in the book of Matthew, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. It's a pronouncement that he makes that, that steers, I think, everything that we should think about what's going on in the next few chapters. Everything that we should be thinking about as we come each Sunday, hopefully, in the build-up to Easter. In the following weeks, the next Sunday mornings, hopefully in the days in between as well, the build-up to Easter, because what follows is a series of incidents, uh, a gathering of pace, a building up to Jesus' arrest and his trial, which basically flesh out that statement that Jesus makes in verses 1 and 2. The Son of Man will be crucified at the ultimate Passover. So with those words ringing in our ears, um, we see, therefore, in our passage this morning, just verses 1 to 16 we're going to look at, we see people making preparations for Jesus' death. And I don't know if you noticed, but there's meaning hidden everywhere in the passage um, if we look for it. Did you notice throughout the passage? Just scan down uh, at the verses with me. You've got the chief priests, verse 3 onwards, beginning to plot and scheme to finally put an end to Jesus and the stir that he's caused. There's a deep irony, I think, there, as an aside. The people, the chief priests who should be preparing the lamb for the Passover, that was part of their job as the chief priests, they're preparing to kill Jesus instead. Uh, jump down to the end of the passage, verse uh, 14, uh, and a couple of verses there. We see Judas, who again, we're told, the one called Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, verse 14, we see him again, with tragic irony, plotting to hand Jesus over, seeing an opportunity to betray his friend. And all the way through, with, with these other schemes and plans, we see Jesus elaborating on what he says 
fully in control, fully aware, preparing, walking as part of the cross, with purpose, with resolve, getting ready for Easter. This is a story about making preparations for Easter, I think. And I don't know how you uh, prepare for Easter. I, I sort of think Easter's kind of like uh, Christmas's more introverted baby brother, isn't it, in some ways in our society. I mean, there is a lot uh, around cream eggs, hot cross buns. I don't know about you, we're hoping the weather might eventually turn. We're hoping the school holidays match up with the actual Easter weekend. Um, but it doesn't really dominate our lives in quite the same way, does it? And I have to say, even in Christian circles, I think, it can be hard to remember just how central the Easter story is to the Christian message, can't it? Amidst the eggs and the chickens and the bank holidays. So it's fitting that in these weeks leading up to Easter, but especially this morning, we're going to spend a few minutes pressing in on this little incident that Matthew has recorded for us amidst the scheming and the planning of the people orchestrating Jesus' death to notice what is at the heart of this passage, actually, how one woman from verse 6 comes to Jesus at a dinner party and see how she approached and prepared for Easter. And I think we're going to see three things, three simple things, but actually things that I think are quite profound. We're going to see what it means to recognize Jesus' death, what it means to value Jesus' death, and therefore how we get ready for Easter. So let's jump in. Uh, verse 6, uh, we'll just sort of rehearse the story again. Jesus, we're told, verse 6, is in the home of Simon the leper, which in itself, we haven't got time to go into that, in, in itself is massively interesting, isn't it? Simon, who's described as a leper, a, a leper having a dinner party, that should be causing us to question straight away. Lepers were not allowed under Jewish law to mix with other people. Probably this is a term that was used for the fact that he was a leper. This, I think, we're supposed to think, is someone that Jesus had previously healed. And he's invited Jesus to a dinner party. And Jesus is there with his disciples, and we're told he's reclining at the table, which is the way you ate at a table around in, in Palestine at that time. And in the midst of the dinner party, as Jesus is reclining at the table, what happens? We'll look down again at the passage. A woman comes to him. We're not told if she arrives. Uh, we're not told if she was already eating with them. But we are told she's carrying an alabaster jar of what Matthew says is very expensive perfume. And again, just kind of thinking about what those terms mean. An alabaster jar was in itself an incredibly expensive item. It would have been sealed. It was a type of marble at the time. And we, we know from other gospel accounts who give us slightly different details that this was a rare perfume. This was probably imported. It was certainly aged, very expensive. And the woman comes to Jesus. She would have had to have broken open the jar, snapped the neck probably, it was a one-use-only bottle of perfume. And with everyone looking on, just imagine the scene as the smell of this exotic, aged perfume fills the room, which it would have. She pours it out over Jesus' head, doesn't she? She pours away onto Jesus' head this incredibly valuable, precious liquid. And I imagine what must have been an intoxicating, sort of heady, smelling cloud that lingered in the room that, that fell as it poured over Jesus' head. And immediately what happens? Well, the disciples, verse 10, sorry, verse 9, 
perhaps out loud, perhaps sort of behind their hands around the table, they start to mutter, don't they? They say, why? Why has she done this? Why has she wasted, they say, such an expensive item in pouring out this perfume over Jesus' head? Which is, I think, the question that we need to press in on this morning as we look at this passage. I think this is the question that this passage asks us. Why? What would drive this woman to do such an incredibly, extravagantly seeming act for Jesus? Perhaps you're, you're new this morning. Perhaps you're visiting. Uh, can I say again, you're, you're very welcome. Perhaps you're new to Christian things. I think this is a question that we all should be asking, actually. Whether we would call ourselves Christians or not, what would drive someone who follows Jesus to devote themselves in such an extravagant way that they would pour out a jar of perfume on Jesus' head like this lady does? And the answer to that question is, I think, in the little verses in the centre of this passage where Jesus reacts to this woman's action. He says, verse 10, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And then he explains why. He says, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Notice the logic of what he says in those verses, verse 10. He says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. And then he explains why. He says, because she's taken her opportunity to honour me and because she's anointed me for burial. And those are the, the two things that I think we're going to see this morning. Firstly, she's understood the significance of Jesus' death, point one. If we step back for a moment and ask, why, why would you pour oil on someone's head in first century Palestine? And there are a couple of reasons, apparently. I spent some time this week looking at commentaries and things. One was you might simply do it to honour a guest at your table. Um, apparently it was quite common. You might have certainly cheaper oils than this, but you might pour oil on someone's head to honour them as a mark of respect, of welcome. Um, if you know Psalm 23, a famous psalm in the Old Testament, um, there's, a, there's a famous line which is, you anoint my head with oil. But there's more to it uh, biblically as well. Um, biblically speaking, anointing someone with oil was something you did to someone extra special sometimes. It was the kind of thing you did to a king. Kings were anointed with oil as a mark of their position. And so I think we're supposed to be sort of holding both those kind of things in mind here. This is a mark of deep respect, isn't it? But also there's kind of hints here of Jesus' position, his kingly role. But he explicitly actually says why the woman has done it, doesn't he? He says, no, she has done it specifically to prepare my body for burial. And so I take it what Jesus is saying is, her act is an expression of something that she has understood that is looming on the horizon. Something he's already said, actually, hasn't he? The fact that the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Do you see how her action shows that she understands the series of events that are taking place? The Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. We'll have to wait till next week, actually, to get to the heart of what that phrase means, what the Passover is all about. Um, but essentially, without wanting to spoil the thunder of, of next week, essentially the Passover was the Jewish celebration of how God rescued his people from slavery, wasn't it? It was about how God rescued his people from the land of Egypt through the death of a lamb to pay for their sin. That's what Passover was. 
And so we shouldn't underestimate, I think, the depth of this woman's understanding, how much she gets of what is actually going on. Firstly, it's an extravagant act, isn't it, that she performs. It's a mark of deep respect. She obviously understands something of the importance of Jesus to anoint him. She obviously understands that he is the Son of Man, that he is God's anointed. But she understands more than that, doesn't she? Because it's an odd phrase. Did you notice? He says, she's prepared me for burial. I was thinking about this this week, and I thought, well, that's quite an odd thing to do, isn't it? Um, Because while it wasn't odd to prepare a body after the person had died for burial, why would you anoint someone for burial while they're still alive? The commentators agree on this passage. It must be because the woman realises there will not be another opportunity to anoint Jesus. Certainly not for her. And the people who were most likely to have limited opportunities for their bodies to be anointed after death were the crucified, criminals, enemies of the Roman government who were hung up on crosses and then slung in criminals' graves. Do you see why she takes her opportunity now to anoint Jesus for burial? She understands enough about not just the fact that Jesus is going to die, but the type of death that Jesus is going to die. She, she understands the building situation. She understands the powerful people who want Jesus out of the way. She's listened to his own teaching about his mission and his purpose. She knows he's going to die. And so she thinks, this is my chance to acknowledge and honour his death. And I think Matthew records uh, this incident for us as a deliberate contrast to what everyone else is doing as they prepare for Easter, as they prepare for Jesus' death. Do we see, in contrast to everyone else so far, with this action, this woman makes a profound statement that she gets the fact that Jesus needs to die. And what a big deal that is. She's saying as she anoints Jesus, the king, literally the anointed one, will die, and he'll die as a criminal on a Roman cross. And I accept that. As we've said, in next week's passage, at the Last Supper, Jesus is going to elaborate on the detail of what his death will achieve. But do you see the hints that are here in this passage, in this woman's action? He hints at why this is the centre of what he's come to do. Why everything in Matthew's Gospel has been building up to this event. This passage shows us, in part, why it's at the centre of his mission to save humanity. Because he's going to save humanity, not fundamentally through his teaching, not fundamentally through his good works, not fundamentally through all the people that he's been ministering to and the good works that he's been doing. He's going to save humanity through his death as the Passover lamb to rescue his people. The anointed king dying the death of a criminal so sinful people can be reconciled to God. Can I say, if if we're here this morning and that's new to us, please come back, because in a nutshell, that is why Easter is at the heart of everything Christians believe in. It's why we've spoken about it frequently in the leading of the service so far, in the dedication. This is the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to accept and understand the anointed king dying the death of a criminal so sinful people can be reconciled to God. 
While chief priests are plotting, while the disciples are talking, while Judas is busy betraying, this woman is pausing to recognize the significance of Jesus' death. And that's one of the ways that she's preparing for Easter. But it's not just that she recognizes the significance of Jesus' death, is it? I think there's a lot more going on in what she does. She also shows how much she values Jesus for his death, doesn't she? Um, I recently had the uh, privilege of researching and purchasing some perfume for someone special in my life. And I have to say, it was an amazing experience. It was amazing to see just how little you get for your money. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? 50 mil um, of, of this particular perfume. 50 mil, which in my head is, you know, that's a generous shot of whiskey, right? <laughs> Over 50 pounds. That's one pound per drop. And that meant that my incredibly generous gift, when it came, um, came with also some very helpful suggestions about how the perfume might want to be used. Maybe just one spray at a time. Maybe only for special occasions, perhaps. 20-year anniversaries. Maybe we could add some water just to kind of make it go a bit further. Uh, they say romance is dead, don't they? But you see, the thought of, of pouring it all out in one go, of using that perfume, that precious liquid, in that way, it seems crazy. It would have seemed crazy to me. There's something about expensive liquid, I think, uh, simply being poured out. I don't know what it is about pouring, but it screams opulence, doesn't it? It screams extravagance. It, it screams over-the-top, lavish behavior. And we're told elsewhere, again, in, in some of the other accounts of this incident, this perfume was probably over a year's worth of wages, maybe a minimum of £20,000 in today's money, probably more. I did a, a quick bit of research online, actually. This perfume would have been in the top 10 most expensive perfumes in the world now, given current value. If you want to know what the most expensive ones are, ask me afterwards. I'm saving up. <laughs> but that's essentially what the disciples say, don't they? Let's go back to verse 8. What do they say when they see the woman pouring out this perfume? They say, verse 8, why this waste? This perfume, they say, could have been sold for a high price. You could have got so much for this perfume and given the money for the poor. Think of what you could have done with this money, they say. And just, let's just pause. Let's, let's, to begin with, think the best of the disciples for a moment. We could say, on one level, it's not a bad question, is it, that they ask? Firstly, it's practical, isn't it? Just like me with my one spray rule. Don't you realize what this is worth? Don't you know what else you could do with this, with this money, with this perfume? It's a practical question. Secondly, though, it also seems like an obedient question, actually. We, we jumped in at chapter 26, but if we were to flip back to chapter 25, we'd see the last piece of teaching that Jesus has given the disciples was to care for the poor. Go back and read that this afternoon, maybe. In fact, he said specifically, in caring for the poor, you honour me. So surely this can't be just Jesus giving us an excuse to take all our money and rather than giving it to Cap or something to help the poor, uh, going off and buying Christian Dior in bucket loads. But again, we need to listen to what Jesus says, don't we, about this incident. 
Because actually he shows us, no, the disciples have got it completely wrong, even thinking the best of their intentions. What does he say? He says, why are you bothering this woman? It's, it's really lovely, isn't it, the way he defends her. Leave her alone, he says. She has done a beautiful thing to me. And then he explains what that means. What does he say? He says, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Do you see what his logic is there? He says, no, leave her alone. Stop bothering her. If you really cared about the poor disciples, there are always opportunities to help them. And I take it, you should. He's already told them that. But do you see what he's saying? He's saying, no, disciples, if that's what you value, helping the poor, there's nothing stopping you. You can do that any time you want. The question I want to ask you, though, he's saying, is how much do you care about me and my death? What value do you attach to that, disciples? Again, pull back from just this incident with the disciples. The, the, the passage as a whole we see, don't we, all these different people preparing for Jesus' death. But as they prepare, we see hints of the kind of things that they are valuing. You have the chief priests, verses 3 to 4. They're desperate to be rid of Jesus because basically he's upsetting their power and influence. The way they want to get rid of him even, they want it to be in a way that will not cause a riot among the people. You have Judas at the end of the chapter, verse 14. Judas, who values 30 pieces of silver... Uh, the Old Testament price of a slave. That's what he thinks Jesus is worth. Again, another little sidebar. People think of Judas as being really complicated sometimes. I don't know, you know, people think, oh, what's going on? You know, Judas's, Judas' motivation and stuff like that. Can I say, I think Matthew paints him actually as tragically simple. He loves money. He's not a complicated character at all. So you have the chief priests, you have the, the Judas, you have the disciples. And the disciples, they see this extravagant love for Jesus as what? What do they say? They say it's a waste. What a waste to pour out this perfume on Jesus' head. The passage actually says they're indignant. It's quite a strong word. Do you see? They're almost, it's almost like blasphemy to them to see this money being poured away. To see something that should be treasured and reverenced like money thrown away in an extravagant gesture. Do you see all these people showing what their hearts value, what they treasure, and then we have this woman literally pouring away her most valuable possession because she's realised the true thing of value as she stands in the presence of Jesus. I take it this action is showing us if Jesus' death isn't at the heart of everything he's come to do, then the, the disciples are right. It, it is a waste, isn't it? If our state before God is not really as serious that we don't need Jesus to die in our place as a Passover lamb, then pouring away such a valuable possession is madness. But if Jesus really is the Son of Man who will die as the Passover lamb, if the anointed king really does need to go to a criminal's cross so sinful people like us can be friends with God again, if that's what it's going to take, the immortal God stepping into history to die for a world that has rejected him, then 20,000 pounds of perfume is nothing compared to what his death is achieving, is it? 
And the response of a heart that gets that, like this woman does, is her response. It's extravagant worship and love and thankfulness. That's what she's doing, isn't it? Worshipping at the feet of Jesus because she's seen and realised how valuable his death is. I was thinking, you would only think this celebration of Jesus is a waste if you didn't think he needed to die, wouldn't you? Or to be more specific, you'd only think it was a waste if you didn't really think he needed to die for you. You would only fail to treasure Jesus as valuable if you were treasuring something else instead, as I take it the other examples in this passage are. And notice how lovely as well Jesus' response is to someone who understands and appreciates his death. What does he say? It's great, isn't it? He says, she's done a beautiful thing to me. He says, this is what pleases me. He says, this is what gets me out of bed in the morning. People responding in humble acceptance and with extravagant worship because they've realized what I've come to do. And he says more, doesn't he? Verse 19, I I love it. He says, truly I say to you, this is his favorite phrase in Matthew's gospel, when he says, this is really the important bit. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. It's quite helpful for us, isn't it? It's one of the few places, actually, in the Bible, in Jesus' teaching, where we're specifically told the person that we're supposed to hold up to consider. We sometimes have to sort of figure that out as we read. But Jesus says, no, no, I'm telling you, the person you need to think about as this story is told for generations and generations through the years is think about this woman's response to appreciate my death. Think about this heart of thankfulness and love in light of what I've done. This is an essential part of the gospel message, he says. It's actually, um, it kind of echoes a familiar phrase at the end of Matthew's gospel where Jesus talks about the gospel being proclaimed in all the world. He uses the same phrase here. When this gospel is proclaimed, make sure you remember what this woman has done. Striking, isn't it? And that means, as we look at this woman's response, as we look at the way she, she sees the significance of Jesus' death, As we look at the way she values Jesus' death, this passage forces us to ask, I think, what is Jesus' Jesus' death worth to us? How to get ready for Easter. Uh, When I was uh, about 11, I think it was, I was out cycling with my brother. And I'd not long had a new bike. Uh, It was a mountain bike uh, back in the 90s. Um, I needed to deal with all the mountains in the east of England. Um, and I was out cycling with my brother and um, something happened, I can't quite remember what, but on a road I lost control and I slammed on my brakes, specifically my front brake, and uh, I careered over the handlebars as you do when you do that. And in the process, I, I snapped off the wing mirror of a BMW parked on the road. Clean off. Quite impressive, actually. And I cycled home, I was fine, and I told my dad, and he sort of tutted. <laughs> Uh, and checked I was all right. And then he got in the car and he drove down and he left a note to cover the the cost of the damage. And a few weeks went by. A few weeks later, my mum took me aside. I can't remember what we were talking about. And she said, did you ever thank your, your, your dad for covering the cost of the damage, for sorting out the wing mirror? And I said, yeah, I think I did. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure I did. She said, no, did, did you thank him? Did you, do you appreciate what that cost? And I said, well, well no, what, what's the big deal? What did it cost? And she said, it cost 200 pounds. 
which when you're 11 is like 200 million pounds, isn't it? Like, it's just a vast sum of money. But I hadn't taken the time to really consider, let alone meditate, on exactly what my dad had done on my behalf. I mean, I knew he'd done it, but it hadn't really occurred to me just how deep this debt was that I could never have paid, however many cars I washed or lawns I mowed or paper rounds I took up. I just thought, he's my dad. It's his job, isn't it? It's what he does. But how often is that the way we approach the familiar story of the cross? It's what Jesus does, isn't it? He goes to the cross. God forgives us, doesn't he? It's what he does. We can sing the songs, we can say the words, we can read the stories. It's easy to be pragmatic when it comes to worship. It's less easy, isn't it, to be truly passionate. It's easy to go through the motions, it's easy to do the things, it's easy to say the words. But passion and love for Jesus, actually, this passage shows us, it shows the extent to which we've really understood and accepted his death for us. A couple of cautions, I think, um, to this passage. I don't think this is teaching us what some people have dubbed um, the debtor's ethic when it comes to Christian living. That's something that that would say, you know, Jesus has done so much for you. What are you going to do for him? As if the way we serve Jesus is like we're kind of constantly trying to pay him back for what he's done. I don't think that's what this is saying at all. This is not a call simply to do more for Jesus sort of out of guilt because we feel bad about what he's done for us. That's not the way grace works. We don't live for Jesus to pay him back. But we mustn't miss the challenge that is in this passage, which is, I think, that the state of our hearts towards Jesus will be shown in the measure of our devotion. Because at the end of the day, worship, and I mean that in the broadest sense, okay, not just singing, but living, uh, serving, honouring, Worship is all about what we value, isn't it? We worship what we love. And honouring, accepting, living for Jesus in that sense is always costly like it is for the woman in this passage. Because if we want to treasure Jesus, we have to break open and pour away all the other things that we might naturally treasure. Our time, our money, our love of self, As I was preparing this week, I was struck again by the indignation of the disciples. You see, they can't abide seeing Jesus approve of this waste of money and resources. And it made me think how often, actually, I do resent even the things that I give to Jesus. Do you know, I I do the stuff. But I resent it. Usually it is my time, my money, my weak attempts to be godly. How often they're done half-heartedly through gritted teeth because actually... Those are the things that my heart really worships. And I give them over kind of with a clenched fist. But another caution here. The answer is not simply to try and whip ourselves up into giving more for Jesus. The answer in this passage is to look again at the cross as we prepare for Easter. To come afresh to the treasure and the value and the love for Jesus, for who he is and for what he's going to do as he dies as the Passover lamb. Like a gardener, it's not, it's not simply enough to, to pull up weeds, to spot the idols in our life that we are worshipping and treasuring. You need to put something in their place. You need to plant something new. You need to cultivate it. And as it grows, it will squeeze out all the room for all the other weeds to grow. 
coming afresh as we prepare for Easter to the death of Jesus and letting that grow large again in our vision. That's what will turn half-hearted, pragmatic devotion into loving, passionate praise. If you're anything like me, there's always tomorrow to do that, isn't there? Um, Tomorrow I'll spend some more time thanking Jesus. Tomorrow I'll have an extra 15 minutes to meditate on his grace. Next week I'll pause to consider where I place my value in life. The things that squeeze out my capacity for loving Jesus. I don't know about you, my heart is so often cold, my worship is so often feeble because I obsess and I worry and I covet so many things that aren't Jesus. And if that's you as well, can I say this passage is not just a challenge, it's a comfort, isn't it? Because the fact that Jesus includes this story in all the busyness of preparing for his death shows that Jesus knows we need reminding. He knows our hearts are cold. And that's why he says, wherever this gospel is preached, what she has done will be told in memory of her. He says, you know, we are today the people called to remember this woman's preparations for Easter. Uh, Richard Sibbs was a Puritan preacher. He wrote a sermon called The Tender Heart. And he wrote about how the medicine we need to warm cold hearts towards Jesus, to change us into people of extravagant love, is to come afresh to the gospel, to to Jesus' death to who he is, to come afresh the way you draw near a fire when you're cold. And he said it like this. It'll come up on the screen. It's a long quote, but I think it's worth it. He said, I'm sure nothing will melt the heart of man but the blood of Christ, the passion of our blessed Saviour. When a man considers the love that God showed him in sending of his son and doing such great things as he has done in giving of Christ to satisfy his justice, in setting us free from hell, Satan and death, the consideration of this melts the heart and makes it become tender. What? Has the great God of heaven and earth sent Christ into the world for me? Humbled himself to death of the cross for me? This consideration cannot work, cannot but work love to God again. For love is a kind of fire which melts the heart. Next week our passage is going to press in deeper on the meaning and depth of Jesus's death the heart of the Passover we're going to take the Lord's Supper which means we've got a week before then to start preparing and I take it that's what we're called to do in light of this passage so why not have a think how can we do that this week remember the significance of Jesus's death humble acceptance and celebrate the value of Jesus's death extravagant worship should bow our heads I'm going to pray for us Father, we simply ask that you would give us fresh eyes to look upon Jesus this morning. We confess we approach Easter with busyness in our lives, with sin in our hearts, with idols crowding out our appreciation of you. But we thank you that in your grace you've given us this lovely picture of this woman who recognised Jesus' death and loved him for it. So we pray you'd help us draw near the fire of your gospel afresh this week. Show us the things we treasure which stifle our treasuring of Jesus 
and change us into people, we pray, who love you because you have first loved us. In Jesus' name.